Hey, Bob, I'm going to take the next month off. You okay with that? What? The whole month? No. That's crazy. Wait, why not? Congress does it. Come on. Get out of my office. Okay, that didn't work, and maybe I oversold it a bit. Congress may be headed home for the August recess, but that doesn't mean they're taking the month off. There's a surprising history behind the August recess. In a sense, it tells the story of a nation's growing pains, from the Civil War to World War II to the Cold War. It involves a plan to knock out an entire wall of the Capitol building and the invention of a brand new technology called manufactured weather. Hey, I'm Reed Wilson, and this is The Hill's History Cast, a podcast on the history and culture of American politics. In an era in which the vast majority of Americans dislike Congress, there might be no better distillation of that dissatisfaction than the August recess, the month when Congress leaves D.C. to head home. It's a break Taylor made for attack ads, right? Your member of Congress is taking a month off while you have to work. That's my colleague Ashley Perks. It was her idea to dive into the history of the August recess. The history of the break itself is relatively recent. It wasn't until 1971 that Congress took its first formal August break. But this story starts in the earliest days of the Republic, when Congress looked a lot different than it does today. And that all starts with the way members of Congress were elected. Today, 49 states elect their members of Congress on, you know, Election Day which the Constitution says must fall on the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. Members are then sworn in in the first week of January when Congress meets. But during the 19th century, lots of states elected their members of Congress at different points during the year. Senators were chosen by state legislatures until the early part of the 20th century, so they might not even be elected until January. And the earliest members of Congress had a long trip ahead of them in horse-drawn carriages or the earliest trains to get to Washington. To give them time to actually get here, members of Congress were sworn in in early March, same as the new president. They might spend a few days in Washington approving new cabinet officials, but they didn't really start their business until months later. The congressional calendar is very different in the 19th century and early 20th century than it was today. In some ways, it was not even on purpose. It was a bit of an accident of history. The Constitution put in place that Congress would meet in December after an election year. That's Dan Holt, the Senate's assistant historian. As you got into the 19th century, they would have a maybe a short special session in March where they would confirm cabinet nominees, and then they would go back home for the rest of the year, not to come back again until December, except under very um, select circumstances when the president might call them back to face some kind of legislative issues that he wanted them to take up. Here's an example. The 7th Congress took office on March 4th, 1801, the same day Thomas Jefferson became the third president. They recessed the next day, March 5th, and they didn't come back until December 7th, nine months later. Then they worked from December to May and took another break. The next Congress didn't even show up in Washington until October 17th, 1803, almost a full year after Election Day. For most of the 19th century, Congress mostly showed up in December, with the occasional early session to confirm those new cabinet appointments. There are three other reasons Congress didn't come to Washington during the summer. First, it gets hot here. Like, really hot. Second, members of Congress had other jobs to do back home, like, you know, running their law offices. Here's Joanna Halleck, who wrote about the history of the August recess for the U.S. Capitol Historical Society. As anyone who's lived or worked in D.C. knows, 
the summers there, especially August, can be rather brutal. And so getting out of D.C. was was ideal in the month of August, Um, not to mention the fact that a lot of the members of Congress early on had other professions. The heat was a real issue. The new Senate chamber had been built in 1859 at a time before air conditioning. Senators immediately complained that the room got way too hot in the summer months. So in the 1890s, there's all kinds of talk about how to help cool down uh, the the Senate chamber. And there's actually proposals, for example, to put giant blocks of ice in front of fans and just maybe that'll cool it down. Um, It's a plan that never really comes to fruition, but you could see how desperate they were to try and cool down the chamber. In 1923, a new senator from New York named Royal Copeland got to Washington. He was a physician, and he thought the hot summer months were actually bad for your health. 34 members of Congress had died over the previous dozen years, and Copeland thought the heat was to blame. He proposed knocking out the north wall of the Senate chamber to let in some air. But then this new invention comes along. Just on the eve in 1928 that they were planning on maybe knocking down the north wall in order to get some window space, the carrier company invents what is called manufactured weather. And they uh, present it to Congress. And in uh, August 1929, the Senate had its first air conditioning system installed. The third reason Congress didn't show up early, there wasn't all that much to do. Today, being a member of Congress is a full-time job. But governing a small nation of a few million people wasn't all that strenuous. So being in Congress was more like a part-time gig. Once Congress was done with its work for the year, they would adjourn sine die, Latin for without day. Sine die just means that uh, they adjourn without any set date for returning. Unless unless called back under extraordinary circumstances, it just means that um, that session of Congress is over to be um, uh, held over until the next session begins. The calendar worked just fine until the late 1920s, when Congress is out of session as the Great Depression hit. By then, it wasn't really feasible to have this long delay between an election and an inauguration. So they passed the 20th Amendment, which moved Inauguration Day up. A new president's term would start on January 20th, and a new Congress would be sworn in on January 3rd. So, slowly, the congressional calendar started getting longer and longer. By the beginning of the 20th century, Congress would be in D.C. for an average of about 100 days a year. From World War I to World War II, they were in session about 150 days a year. In 1946, Congress passed the Legislative Reorganization Act. One provision of that law suggested Congress should be done with their work for the year by the end of July. But that was just a suggestion. In the post-war years, they'd be here from January straight through to late July, then late August, then late September, and then into October without a break. Congress hasn't met their self-imposed July deadline since 1956. It becomes clear and through the 1960s that you really start to get year-long sessions, and it starts to dawn on most involved that Congress can't get out of town before the summer, probably not before the late fall. It's really legislating as a year-round job. Dan said 1963 was a particularly brutal year. That year, Congress came into session on January 9th and stayed through December 30th. And by the 1960s, this new wave of senators was coming to the office. Younger senators with families back home and voters who wanted to see them. There were also these newfangled things called airplanes and commercial air travel, which meant a member of Congress could get home a lot faster and easier than they might have in the past. 
Margaret Chase Smith had proposed setting a regular break in 1959, but that didn't go very far. Gail McGee, a senator from Wyoming, proposed a mandatory three-month break after that long 1963 session. Initially, it was going to be a three-month recess was his first proposal, and he pushes for that for the rest of the decade. And by the time 1967 rolls around, he has um, 32 co-sponsors for that proposal. By 1970, Congress was ready to pass another legislative reorganization bill. They left the suggested July adjournment date in there, but they said that if Congress could not adjourn by July, they would have to take a break. Joanna Halleck read that part of the bill for us. Congress shall recess, quote-unquote, from that Friday in August, which occurs at least 30 days before the first Monday in September. So the next year, in 1971, Congress took its first August recess. Congress takes a lot of breaks every year. There's Easter recess, Memorial Day recess, the 4th of July, and even a two-week break for President's Day. But the August recess is the only one that's actually written into the law. If Congress wants to skip an August recess, they can. But they have to pass a resolution that actually lets them do it. Almost from the moment Congress scheduled its first August recess, critics started portraying the recess as a month-long vacation. That makes a good talking point. McGee even mentioned taking his kids on vacation while pushing to create the August recess. But that's not what most members use August recess for. Most of them spend their August meeting constituents. Some hold town hall meetings, a practice that really got started in the 1980s. And in even-numbered years, they use their time to campaign for re-election. This year, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has threatened to cancel at least a part of August recess, so they can keep working on a health care bill to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. Either way, the House looks like they'll stick to their plan and get out of town by July 28th. The good news for senators, if McConnell makes them stick around, the AC in the Capitol is a lot better than Carrier's manufactured weather back in the 1920s. Hey, thanks for listening to our show today. We leaned heavily on Joanna Halleck's research and research by the House and Senate historians. Our thanks to Dan Holt in the Senate Historian's Office for taking the time to sit down with us. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Hill History Cast. And drop us a line to let us know what you think of the show. We're at podcast at thehill.com. We're taking our own August recess after this episode, but we'd love to hear your suggestions for season two, which will kick off in a few months. In the meantime, thanks to our producers, Moral Whiteman and Lisa Rule. Ashley, thanks for joining me today. I'm Reed Wilson, and this is The Hills History Cast. <laughs>